Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. Now, whether it be simple instruction or just a historical narrative of the consequences or the act of sex, it is mentioned an overwhelming amount in the biblical canon we have in our hands, especially the New Testament. And I love how Pastor Steve named this series Biblical Sexuality because that is exactly what we need to be, where we need to be informed about sex as human beings. So with kicking off this series, I want to give you a basic overview of what biblical sexuality is, what God wants us to know about sex, and how it is very different than what the world or our inner sin-broken feelings may lead us to believe. Now there are three aspects of sex we're going to examine today, and also throughout I'm going to address myths that have developed about sex that they often serve as the basis for us carrying out wrong thoughts or ideas about them. Now, one of those myths that both believers and non-believers alike are holding to today is this one. The Bible's view on sex is outdated. Now, this is basic theology 101. God is immutable. Right? That means he does not change his, own, his mind on what he declares. Therefore, it is impossible for God's view on anything to be outdated. This is what he has declared about sex. This is what he is declaring to us about sex. And you know, our sexual activity can often be a direct indicator of how we view His Word, the Bible. See, if we are living in blatant, continued, unrepentant sexual sin, clearly spelled out in the Bible, well, perhaps it reveals that we hold a low view of the authority of the Bible, or we're just really kind of ignorant to its clear teachings about the matter. Unless you believe that God is indeed immutable, and therefore His Word, the Bible, is unchanging and relevant to all generations, we will never be able to live out the blessed life that God desires us to live. And that includes how we live out our sexuality. I implore you, in love and care for your soul, resist this lie that the Bible's view on sex, or anything for that matter, is outdated. Cultures change. People change. God does not. Now, with that said, let's begin with our first aspect of biblical sexuality. The design. Now, I'm going to say something right now, and try not to fall out of your chair when I do, okay? Here it goes. God created sex. <gasps> hey, where's the gas? Where's the gas? <gasps> yeah, okay. I know, right? Come on, take a look at Genesis 2, 22 through 25. 
And the Lord God fashioned into a woman, and you could read along in your sermon notes if you don't have your Bible in front of you. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Our Lord Jesus himself actually repeats this narrative in the New Testament, specifically in Matthew chapter 19. Now the term one flesh is certainly not just about sexual union, and the meeting goes much deeper than that. Nevertheless, the implications of a physical connection of the male and female anatomy through the act of sex can certainly be implied by that term, one flesh. Sex is not something humans came up with after the fall, nor was it somehow introduced by Satan. Sex was an important part of God's plan for humanity from the beginning. It is specifically part of the Genesis creation account to which God said, it is very good. Now, I have to say that many people have a misunderstanding of what sin and evil exactly is. Many believe that sin and evil are created things. They're not. Humans did not create sin, and the devil did not create evil. I want you to think back to Pastor Steve's History of the World series that we just finished. Remember, God created everything, and he created it perfectly with a specific design and function. Sin and evil came about from a deviation from design, a perversion of the created order. Therefore, anything, that deviates from God's design for it is considered sin and evil. And all sexual sin is just that. It is a deviation from God's good and perfect design for sexual, sexual intimacy. Now, in the original Koine Greek language that the New Testament was written in, there's a word used to encompass all deviations from God's design for sex, and it is the Greek word pornaya. It is where we get our word pornography from. Pornaya in our English Bibles is translated as sexual immorality. In some of the older versions, like the King James, you'll see the word fornication. Take a look at Ephesians 5.3. Let there be no sexual immorality, pornaya, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Now, I want to start by going over the important aspects of God's design for sex and understand acts then that would be considered pornaya because they are in fact deviations from that design. Many of these are going to be covered more in depth throughout this series, uh, but today I really want us to be focused on the actual design itself. This is going to give us a foundation for the coming uh, lessons in this series. So, now, let's start with our first aspect of God's design for sex. Man and woman. God created sex to be between 
a biological man and a biological woman. Any deviation from that is a sin. This includes bestiality, that is, having sex with an animal, and it does include choosing to indulge in same-sex romantic activity or willfully living out a gay or lesbian lifestyle. The Bible is clear and unambiguous in this matter. Sex is only to be between a man and a woman. That is not my personal opinion. That is not just some church rule. That is indeed the reliable and protective Word of God. Now, this topic of homosexuality and the plethora of issues during, uh, that surround the subject, it's, it's going to be covered more in depth later in this series. So I encourage you to stay tuned for more on that. But for now, let's move on. I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians 7. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to there. And this is going to serve as a companion to the blueprint that we find in Genesis and the one affirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19. This is from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, I'm starting in verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So our next aspect of the sexual design as God intended it is one husband and one wife. In verse 2, it's not a coincidence, uh, nor a small thing that Paul specifically uses the terms husband and wife, singular. As an outlet for sexual desire and passion, Paul doesn't simply say, yeah, yeah, each man should have a woman, and yeah, yeah, each, each woman should have a man. But he specifically identifies which singular woman and which singular man is the acceptable recipient of sexual expression. Now this shows us the exclusivity of sex. Sexual desire is only to be fulfilled with our spouse, our own wife, our own husband. Take a look at Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Well, there you go. The Bible is always telling us to give generously. Here's one of those rare instances where we should not be sharing. <laughs> now you're getting okay. Right. Now, before we go, or I want to address a personal myth of mine that I held for the longest time in my youth in regards to sex. And I'm going to get real with you, I'm going to get vulnerable, and I'm going to get open. All right? So, this myth that I developed 
it was of course mainly because of my own sinful nature and really a disregard for my conscience. And contributing to that was a misunderstanding that I held about God's standards for a life of sexual purity and what constitutes sexual immorality. So here's young Mike's myth. As long as I am not looking at porn and having intercourse, I'm okay. Now, I can honestly tell you that I had never had intercourse with a girl until I was married. I also hardly ever viewed pornography. But I was, regrettably, far, far from being sexually pure. Yeah, I didn't have intercourse with my girlfriends, but I did every sensual thing up to that point because, hey, technically we weren't having sex. I didn't look at what the world constitutes as pornography, but I had tons of pictures downloaded on my computer. I kept uh, store catalogs and magazines of women in their underwear and bathing suits that I would look at frequently. I never committed the act of sex with another woman before I was married, but almost every day I'd allow myself to freely fantasize about whoever I wanted, whenever I wanted, and that was almost every day. But hey, all good, right? Wasn't looking at sex, or I wasn't having sex, and I wasn't looking at porn. As far as my stance were concerned, I, I was okay in God's eyes. Now honestly, deep down I knew there was something in me that told me I was doing wrong. I just kind of suppressed it. And it wasn't close till I was about 21 years old of age that the truth of Matthew 5 hit me right in the heart. Take a look at it. These are the words of our Lord. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus sets the sexual purity bar very high. And it is this. Anything that we willfully engage in that provides us or another person with sexual pleasure, mentally or physically, and that includes all those intercourse alternatives, any of this outside of the union of marriage is pornaya. It is sexual sin. Parents, especially dads of sons, Please, please teach this to your children clearly. Make sure that when you teach them about sex, they fully understand the implications of God's call to sexual purity before marriage. Let's examine another myth that we tend to hold to in this area. Sex is okay in a committed relationship. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us permission for anyone other than an officially married husband and wife to engage in sexual activity with each other. According to the Bible, it, it doesn't matter if you've been dating one year, 25 years, 40 years, 50 years. If you are not married, you should not be engaging in anything with another person that provides sexual pleasure. Are these commandments high to live out? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, is it completely countercultural to today's standards? Yeah, for sure. Is it going to be difficult? Absolutely. It is. 
However, that is the sexual standard of God Almighty. But let us not forget Philippians 2.13, and I cling to this every day, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. God does not give a command without the power and ability through the Holy Spirit to carry it out. That includes resisting the temptation of lust and premarital sexual activity. Amen? All right. So what else does 1 Corinthians 7 teach us about sex? Number three, sex is a marital right. Hmm. In verse 3, Paul uses the words should. He says should fulfill. And he uses the words do not. Do not deprive. And that is implying a command to deliver what is rightfully due your spouse. That being a pursuit to fulfill the sexual needs and desires through you as their spouse. So much so, he, essentially, he goes on to say that essentially your spouse owns your body, sexually speaking. We see that there. The wife gives authority over her body. The husband gives authority over his body. Barring, perhaps, any legitimate, extenuating physical, medical, or mental complications, a husband and wife should be having sex regularly. It is literally a God-given right for your spouse to expect you to have sex with them. That is a reasonable expectation of a marriage partner and we should not be withholding it from our spouse. And according to this directive passage, if we are, we're sinning. Now, some of you at this point may have the urge to stand up and yell, Hallelujah, brother, preach it! <laughs> Prophesy! All right, time out. Before we all get hallelujah about getting hot and heavy up in here, let's just seek to understand this correctly, okay? First, regularly is a relative term each couple needs to communicate humbly and lovingly to compromise what that looks like i'm telling you you need to just plainly talk about this topic second this is not permission to demand sex or any specific sexual act from your spouse okay this is a command for you for you to fulfill the sexual needs of your spouse. And this brings us to this important element of God's design for sex. Number four, a servant approach. Like everything we do as Christians, husbands and wives need to take the Philippians 2 approach to sex. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, let us not forget that when Jesus walked this earth, as God incarnate, he had every right to demand he be worshipped. He had the right to be treated as the glorious king that he truly is. But 
he didn't demand those rights, did he? Instead, he, he chose to value others above himself even to the point of death. Do you remember his words in Matthew 20, 28? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. Very good. So how much more as his followers should we approach our sex life with our spouses in this manner? You are to pursue and serve the sexual desires of your spouse. The world's approach to sex is very self-centered and me-focused. Give me what I need. Make me feel good. That is a consumer mindset. But the true design for sex as God created it is how can I give my spouse what they need? How can I serve them best? That is a covenant mindset. Practically, this may mean having sex more often than you personally prefer. This may mean having sex less often than you personally prefer. It may, do, may mean doing things that maybe you're not a big fan of. It may mean foregoing things that you would like personally, but your spouse is uncomfortable with. You can see how this can be very dynamic and nuanced, and that is why clear communication in this area between married couples is vital. But if both the husband and the wife each individually go into it with a commitment to serve the needs of their spouse above their own, it fosters a beautiful, harmonious environment for fulfillment. Which brings us to the final aspect of God's design for sex we're going to look at. Number five, delight. Sadly, there is one myth that actually has developed in Christian culture somewhere along the course of church history, and it goes something like this. Sex is dirty and bad. It is only a necessary evil for procreation and should only be for reproduction. Now, although you might have never been directly told this, for some of us, growing up in a Christian home or attending a Christian school or really just attending church, something like it may feel like that was conveyed to us growing up. And really, to be honest, I'm not sure why this happens, Considering a strong case can be made biblically for sex being a beautiful thing that by design is made to bring much pleasure to a husband and a wife. Just listen to the words of Proverbs 5. You can get the implications here. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. There is even a whole book in the Bible dedicated to romantic love between a bride and a groom. You may have heard of it. It's called the Song of Solomon. Bottom line, God is not shy in his word with expressing that the design for sex was a means of delight for the husband and wife way beyond it just being a necessity for procreation. We thank him and we bring him glory to him for the delight that sex provides in marriage. Now, with all that being said about the design in sex and 
as forthright, really, as the Bible is on the delight of sexual intimacy, the Bible is also equally candid about another very serious aspect of sex, and this is going to be our second point of discussion. Destruction. The Bible could not be any clearer. A deviation from design when it comes to God's instructions for sex will lead to varying degrees of destruction. I don't have time to read it all today, but Proverbs 5 goes on to highlight some practical results of this destruction. And it mentions pain, death, loss of dignity, loss of things you've worked for, physical disease, regret, shame, and utter ruin. The New Testament goes even further and elaborates on a worse kind of destruction. It speaks about the spiritual destruction of pornaya, of sexual immorality. There is a dangerous myth that has been subtly and indirectly circulating around the Western church in recent decades. And as the culture continues to decay morally, this myth has become more and more ingrained in the church and more and more accepted among Christians. Uh, we don't come out right and proclaim this lie, but our actions and our conduct in the realm of sexuality as Christians in the West certainly shows we affirm it, especially with the growing number of Christian couples moving in together and living together before marriage. Here is the dangerous myth we are holding to. Sexual sin is not a big deal to God. Now these scriptures I'm about to read, they, they, they speak for themselves and they don't really need much commentary. There's no need to turn there. Please just listen or you can follow along on the screens. Hebrews 13, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. God takes sex very seriously. The world doesn't, but God does. Therefore, we as Christians need to take sex very seriously. God takes it so seriously that in the context 
of sexual sin in Matthew 5 that we talked about, Jesus says, if something is causing you to sin, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. This was a hyperbole illustration to say that even if something is so valuable to you, even if something is so important to you, if it is causing you continual sin, go to extreme measures to get it out of your life. That relationship that you care so deeply about, if it's causing you continual sexual sin, end it. If your Netflix, Hulu, or social media account is con causing continual sin, delete them. This is a big one. If your smartphone is causing you to sin, turn it in for a flip phone with no apps and no data. These are all extremely valuable things to us personally in the United States. So valuable that they, and so much a part of us that they, well, they resemble the value of, say, a hand or an eye. Here's the bottom line. When you engage, when we engage in any form of sexual immorality, we cause destruction to our physical, mental, and emotional health. We cause destruction to our witness to the world, our effectiveness as Christians in this world. We, we cause damage to our feelings of assurance and salvation, our relationship with pe people, damage to our relationship with our spouse and our future spouse, who may not even be in the picture yet. But most critically, it does damage to your relationship with God. And if it is not dealt with, cut off and gouged out, it can lead to the utter destruction of your soul. It's written right there. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means eternal separation from Him. God has given us a design for sex. And He warns us multiple times in His Word of the destruction that results from deviating from that design. And if we are completely honest, I think most of us would admit, admit to varying degrees, we have deviated from that design in way or, one way or another at times. And it could be fantasizing sexually about someone who is not your spouse. It could be seeking out sexual pleasure by looking at someone virtually or in person. It could be giving or receiving any kind of sexual stimulating pleasure to another before marriage. It could be choosing to act on the homosexual temptations we may have. Some here may be victims of someone else's sexual sin. And we are left with all the pain and suffering their sin has inflicted on you. And my heart goes out to you today. Whatever the sexual sin you find or have found yourself involved in, friend, believe me when I say you're in bondage. Because of the brokenness in our world, sex has the power to enslave. And right now, even if you are, imprisoned with chains of your own making. I am here to tell you that there is hope. There is freedom. There is healing because there is deliverance. Deliverance. That is the last thing we're going to be talking about today.
There is deliverance from sexual sin, whether you are an active participant or the victim of the effects of someone else's wickedness. There is forgiveness and healing from all and every sexual sin. The same God who promises destruction for a deviation from his design is the same God who provides the deliverance from that very destruction. Deliverance from sexual sin or any other sin for that matter starts with the gospel. If you believe it, Jesus Christ, took every ungodly desire, thought, and need. And He placed it upon Himself. And your and mine, all of our sexual immorality was nailed with Christ to the cross. All the shame, all the guilt and pain of your pornia, your sexual immorality, that was experienced by Jesus as he hung there suspended from the heaven he descended from and the world that he designed. There he was punished by God for our foul sexual deviance, receiving the hell that we deserve for deviating from God's design. Those porn habits, one night stands, fantasies, trips to the strip club, friends with benefits, prostitution, crucified with Christ, adultery, fornication, gay, lesbian, bisexual lifestyles, crucified, crucified, crucified. Here's the biblical reality. For the Christian, when Jesus died on that cross, all those things died with Him. At that moment, poor Naya's hold on you was broken. You were given a new master. In fact, you became a new creature, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. You became a beloved and cherished child of the living God. No longer a slave to sex, but a servant to the risen Son. The Son of God, who loved you so much that He left His glorious throne in heaven to be clothed in our sexual filth and punished for our sexual failures. You are free. And as Jesus tells us in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. But please, don't just take my word for it. Look what God has to say in Romans 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's the Word of God. Now listen carefully. This series, it's, it's not about a bunch of begrudging behavior chains to try to achieve some high sexual standard. No. It's about living out an identity change in the freedom of God's good design for sex. It's about a loving, willful service of gratitude to a God who did not need you, but wanted you. Freedom 
from sexual sin is not experienced through a behavior change, but an identity change. We live in a culture where the fulfillment of all sexual desire has become our nation's very identity. But remember, the Christian lives in the world, not of the world. Our identity in Christ is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. It's 1 Peter 2.9. That is who you are. You are a child of God purchased only with the precious blood of God the Son. And now, you have the power of Christ. Through Him, you have the ability to live a sexually pure life. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Will you stand with me? I'm going to invite the uh, worship team to come back up. And this is our response time. Time to respond to, to what you heard and what you feel the Lord is moving on your heart. If you believe everything that I said today, and you believe the promises that God has said over you in His Word, you might be asking, well, then why, why is my life riddled with continual sexual immorality? Why, why am I still living like this? Well, this might sting a little bit, but because you want to. You don't have to. If you had to act on every desire you ever had, that would make God a liar about the freedom from sin's power in your life. You have a choice to make. Friend, I am pleading with you, make the choice today to live out the freedom of Christ's deliverance from bondage of sexual sin. And make the choice to invite the perfect designer and sustainer of all things, Jesus himself, into your sexual expression. I mean, after all, who better to know how best something works than the one who created it? We're going to sing one more song. There's going to be individuals up here at the front that would love to pray with you. Maybe you feel, you know what, I'm done I'm done being in bondage. And I'm ready to be set free. That is available to you. And if you want help praying that, our prayer people here would love to pray that with you. You don't have to come up. You can do it right where you are. You can come up to the, the altar and kneel down. You can talk to God right where you are in your seat. That's the amazing thing with coming up here with this weighty topic. I, I just really imagine Jesus Christ standing right next to me. And that's a reality for every Christian. He is right there with you. So you can talk to him right now. Maybe you've never known about the freedom that is available to you. It's available right now. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe. And that will begin the process of the abundant life that Jesus promised in this life and in life to come. Don't waste this opportunity. The Holy Spirit is moving on your heart. Please, don't waste it. Listen to His voice.
He loves you.